Good morning. Good morning. What an absolute immense measure of the grace of God to be able to be here with each other today. To be able to wake up and celebrate the Lord. To celebrate His Word and His plan and His will for our lives. And to be able to do it together. To have breath, to have life. To have hope for a new tomorrow for us and for anyone who repents and believes the gospel. What a, what a great, great measure of God's grace. I'm so thankful for Sunday mornings. Uh, I said this jokingly earlier to one of you, but we have been celebrating the Lord's Day since it was called the Lord's Day, since the resurrection. And God has yet given us another day to celebrate um, His resurrection. So I'm so thankful for that. I am thankful that uh, you've made your way here today to do the same. Um, we're going to be continuing in our Roman, our, really it was the first week last week. So we'll be back in Romans 12. Um, 12 verses 2 is what we'll focus most of our attention on. Um, and some of verses 1. I would ask you, just pray with me this morning before we begin our sermon. Lord God, You are matchless. You are holy. There is none like You. You are perfect in all of Your ways, and yet You are immutable. You do not change. You do not shift like the sand. You do not blow like the wind. You are a firm foundation upon which we can rest our hearts, our minds, and by the grace of God and in the power of the Holy Spirit, our lives. Would you awaken in us a spirit of obedience? Awaken in us a spirit of discernment. Lord, through Your Spirit, through Your power, would You awaken in us life that only You can give? Would You run freely through Your church That we may follow you in every measure, in every way. And when we do not, Lord, that we would repent and believe and trust the gospel. And run quickly back to you. Lord, And ignite in us a spirit of fellowship, of love, of gentleness, of kindness, of patience, of mercy, of hopefulness. Would you transform not just a part of our lives, but our lives entirely? Would you make us more every day into the image of your perfect Son? Oh God, be gracious to us today. Pour out your blessings on us today. That we may know you. As fully as we possibly can. We pray and ask these things in the wonderful, holy, and matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Today we're going to be, like I said, in Romans 12. Last week we saw the first part of Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. To present your body as a living sacrifice. I appeal. Paul's appeal. Therefore, he's saying, based on all that we know about the goodness, the greatness, the majesty of God that we've seen in the first part of his letter in Romans. I appeal to you. I beg you. Uh, I like the word um, beseech. That's what the KJV uses. I beseech you, I beg you, brothers, present your bodies based on all we know about God as a living sacrifice. 
He says something important that we spent a lot of time focusing on last week and I just want to remind you of today. If we are to do this, if we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, it will only be because we have been met with the mercies of God. We've been met with His rich, undying, unending favor and love. And because of that, because of the drastic change that is brought about when God meets with us, we then can meet with Him. By the mercies of God to present your body as a, as a living sacrifice. Not a dead sacrifice. Not just any sort of sacrifice, but a, a living sacrifice. That is, every day, every hour, every second, that God would conform our minds in such a way that we focus on His will and His will alone. And if we move away from His will, that He would, he would cause us to repent and to trust Him once again. Therefore, everything we know, because of everything that we know about the Lord Vintage Church, I appeal to you by the mercies of of God to present your body, your life as a living sacrifice unto God. I want to try to finish up um, Romans 12, 1 and 2 by focusing, focusing a little bit on Romans 12, 1 and a little bit more on Romans 12, 2. I want us to look at the most obvious Last week we looked a little bit at the most obvious work for a believer. And that is, because you have been met by the mercies of God, the most reasonable thing to do is to present your body as a living sacrifice. Today, I want to cap these verses off by saying, or by looking at the most obvious and reasonable work of the Lord. So this is point number two, because we already had a point number one last week, but it's point number two. It's our only main point this week. And it is spiritual transformation is the most obvious work of God. Spiritual transformation is the most obvious work of God. What I mean is for human beings, for us, spiritual transformation will be the most clear work that we can see. When a life goes from depraved to unlike God, to not following God, and it is transformed by the Spirit of God, it will be obvious that God has done a work in that person. As we look at this passage today, and we think about spiritual transformation, I want to center our thoughts, on, or center our minds on these two thoughts. And that is, that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now we talked about the living sacrifice part of it, but I want to talk a little bit more today about presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. And then the second thought I want us to focus all of our attention on today is that we need to present or we need to be transformed. We need to be transformed as human beings by the renewal of our mind. When these two things are being done by the work of the Holy Spirit, it will be the most obvious and clear work of God in a human's life. I believe, friends, these are the first and foremost proofs that some proofs that someone is a Christian. That they are presenting their bodies as a living sacrifice. And I'm going to say it in this order because this is the way, this is the order Paul uses it today. But I think it is a, a, a repentance, a mind change that leads to a body change, leads to a physical change. But Paul uses it in this order today, so that's the way we're going to keep it. But two of the most sure proofs that, <laughs> that the Holy Spirit is in someone's life, that that person is a Christian, that is that their body is regularly being presented as a living sacrifice and a transformation of our mind. A renewal of our mind. I think these are the most basic evidences for Christ in you. His physical life is changed and his mind is changed. So let's look at these today. We're going to look at these in reverse order, I think, but we're going to look at them as Paul states them. God's working transforms our action. If 
our actions being changed and our mind being changed are the two surest forms of God's working, then we need to see that God's working is what transforms our actions. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual worship. It is your reasonable worship. Two things are for certain. A Christian will experience life change or he is not a Christian. And this life change will almost certainly always, excuse me, will always certainly, not almost always, but always certainly result in a change of behavior. Now, some of those come on smaller scales and slower. And some of those come for us more quickly and um, on large scale. But at some point, there will be drastic change in our life. I know that this sometimes or should go without saying, but even on its, uh, there are some areas of this that may get lost on us. But the most basic, tangible proof of Christ in our lives is a change in our action. It is proof because it is proof that we are a new creation, which is what Christ said our lives will be if He is in us, right? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In Ephesians 4, Paul tells us to put off our old self. Put off our old self. To put on a new life, a new creation. John 3 says, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Galatians 2 says, I am crucified with Christ, and yet I live. It is not I, but Christ who lives Within me. It is a new creation. The reason there is definitive life change in someone who has been changed and transformed by the Holy Spirit is because he is not once what he was. If we are not once what we were, then we have no choice but to be something else. A new creation. A changed physical life. This spiritual transformation will lead to more and more Christ-likeness. You've heard me say it before. You should know it by now. You've all been here long enough. This is called sanctification. I like to use the terminology. It's not my term that I came up with. But I like to use the terminology progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification is being less and less like yourself and progressing In an area more like Jesus. Less and less like yourself. Less and less like who you were. And more and more like who He is. I know I've said this to you before. And this is not me being... This is not me, me being emotional. And this is not me trying to compliment you. I'm making a statement of fact. I don't remember what my life was like without you. I don't remember it. It just seems like this is the way it's always been. Now, I love you, and that gives me so many positive emotions to think about. That's not what I'm doing here. I don't remember what my life was like without you. Now, sometimes in a good way, most of the time in a good way, and sometimes in a bad way. Even with my children, most of the time in a good way, and sometimes in a bad way. I don't remember what my life was like without children. I don't remember what my life was like without my wife. Progressive sanctification is then this. It is growing in Christ in a manner that you remember faintly that there was an old life, but you can't relate with it anymore. You can't relate with it anymore. I I can't relate with a single person. Whenever I think about being single in this world today, it makes me want to vomit. Literally sick to my stomach. I can't think about trying to find someone like my wife again. That would... No! Now, listen. If you're a single person here, you are not without hope in this world. God in His sovereignty, I believe, is setting apart someone for you if you are patient and you trust Him. That's not what I'm saying. Just for me, knowing what I know now, I would never go back. Because I can't relate with that old life. 
Friends, spiritual transformation, progressive sanctification, progressive growth in Christ is growing in a way that you just can't relate with the person that you used to be. Now, it's not that you're above that because any slip and we could be that person again. But progressive sanctification is being unable to relate with the person that you used to be. We shouldn't remember our old selves, especially in a fond way, if we are growing in Christ. I, I probably shouldn't say this, but I'll go ahead and say it. It's on my mind. That's not always a good... Proverbs, I think, speaks against that. But uh, <laughs> better to you know, keep it in your head and, and, to, and let everyone think you're a fool than to open it and remove all doubt, right? Um, I will, I will be driving, this happened this week, and that's why I'm saying it. I will be driving down the road and think about a past relationship and literally shudder. Shudder. Like, oh God, like, still to this day. It's traumatic. Friends, we should have no other view of sin than that. We should not look. Now listen, our past is our past and we should be thankful for it. It is what has shaped us. But we should not look at sin as fondly. And look at sin as something that we can flirt with. Or maybe we can have a little bit of. Or maybe we can waver, the Bible calls it, between two opinions. Paul here is saying we should progress in a way to the Lord that the only favorable thing we see is what's ahead and not what we've left behind. Isn't it great to have the Holy Spirit of God who gives us a mind that is transformed to the things of the Lord? So that we don't have to be people who are caught in the mire of our past. We are set upon the firm rock of our foundation. The cornerstone of Jesus Christ. You need to understand this. This transformation is not just a spiritual transformation. It is not just something you can that you can't grasp. It's transcendent. This spiritual, this transformation is spiritual, but it, this spiritual aspect of it always leads to physical results. Paul says, by the renewing of our minds, and while although I think our minds are renewed first, and we'll talk about that in a minute, I want to mention it here in the context and the order of the way I think it goes, and I think Paul thinks this too. But our minds move our bodies. What does our body consist of? When I think about my body being transformed, I think about my ears and my eyes. Our eyes and ears fill our mind. Our mind is the one that is being transformed so that we can be renewed. But our eyes and our ears fill our mind. Friends, everything that we consume with our eyes and with our ears sears an irremovable imprint on our mind that transforms our actions. Pornography or illicit images, they change the way we view people and can even change the way we treat people. Violent images or satanic images are proven are proven to affect our mentality. Listen. I am not one that thinks that playing video games will make you a school shooter. Right? I am not one that thinks that watching um, war movies or movies where people kill people will automatically make you want to go kill someone. Here is what I think. You aren't that way. Not because they don't have effect on you, 
but because your mind is being overcome by the Spirit of God. So if all that you feel is your, in your mind is with those sort of images, that is reality to you. The only reason that those things have not overcome you is because on some level you filled your mind with something else other than just those things. And so in a sense, for sure, video games and movies and pornographic images and other illicit images affect the way we first view things and then the way we do things. The only reason they don't have control over you is because you are also filling your mind with other things. Our eyes and our ears are what fills our mind. Everything we consume, even if it's by accident, you see someone die, you're not, you're changed by that. That sears an image into your mind that changes you. Think about, think about death or think about getting bad news. Like it sears an image in your mind and then it almost always, whether or not it sticks, causes some sort of movement by you. A change or, or um, resolutions. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Even if you don't stick with them. It is because we are affected by what our eyes see and what our ears hear. If our body is like a cell phone, then our mind is the CPU and our eyes and our ears are the camera and the keyboard. So what do we do? What do we do to make sure that we are not um, overwhelmed by these things? Number one, we cut out things that... Um, are objectively and definitively bad for our minds. Cut them out. Number two, if we are taking, we are we are going to be taking in images and other things that aren't objectively bad, but are also not objectively fruitful. So we need to make sure that if we are taking in thousands of images. Thousands of words every day that are lives that we are obje- uh, pur- uh, purposefully taking in other things of God that counter those images. If we read a book that is, um, if we read a book that is non, uh, that's fiction um, and is, you know, Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings or whatever, we need to take in content that is nonfiction. That is spiritual. That will help us. If we watch X amount of TV or spend X amount of time on a computer or spend X amount of time um, in other things, work or other leisure, whatever it may be, we need to make sure that we're doing the best we can to have a one-to-one ratio of spiritual things, at least a one-to-one ratio of spiritual things to other things. Friends, I want to tell you, um, we are relying heavily on the fact that we are training our minds in the right perspective, but all the while we are inundated exponentially more with other things than we are with spiritual things. Yes. You can't just um, loosely or passively take on the things of God and think that's enough to counter all the other things we're taking in. We have to proactively consume with our eyes and our ears the things of God. This is why I focus so much on reading the Bible and scripture memorization and scripture reading and scripture proclamation and prayer and other disciplines. Because we have to proactively take on the things of God because we are inundated with other things that although may not be objectively sinful, are objectively taking our minds away from the things of the Lord. We need to do our best to consume The things of God. Eat up the things of the Lord. Watch them with our eyes. Listen to them with our ears. Another physical part of our body that has changed is our mouth. The Bible says that death and life are found in the power of the tongue. With one breath, we can bless And with one breath, we can curse. 
with one breath we can uplift and another breath we can tear down. With one we can gossip and slander and name call and the other we can share the gospel and counsel. Death and life are found in the power of the tongue. James says the tongue is a world of evil. But because we are a new creation, ours can be used as an instrument of righteousness. So the question is, is it? Is your mouth used as an instrument of righteousness? If we recorded everything you said for a week, and then we pie graphed everything you said as uplifting and not uplifting, how much of the portion of that pie graph would be uplifting? You know, would it be here? Would it be half? I know some weeks it might be like a line in the middle of the pie graph for me. Death and life are found in the power of the tongue. I am so sick of using my mouth as an instrument of death. May we be sure that whatever is good and holy and right, we not only think on them, but we speak them. Praise, uplifting, worship, scripture, reciting, or just speaking. Wholesome talk. Things that build up. Things that edify. Things that honor the Lord. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Our eyes, our ears, our mouth, our hands and our feet. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12 says, of, of, of the goal of the Christian, of the goal of the average Christian, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind to your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. My philosophy in life is this. Work hard regularly to the glory of the Lord. Never truly retire and try to shape my mind and heart around His will and do it. Work hard in my secular job to the glory of the Lord while trying to be a gospel light. Understand that retirement in its base sense is not biblical. That if I'm going to retire, if I'm going to quit working, that he is just opening the door for me to be a, a, a witness and a testimony in other ways. And to find the will of the Lord and take that path. Our hands are a reflection of our work and our feet are a reflection of the path that we take. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. How do we know that they're being a living sacrifice? Because they're holy and they're acceptable. Holy is consecrated. Set apart for service to the Lord. This is the gospel as a way of life. Our lives are to be consecrated and set apart. This, is not, this does not mean that you're to come up to me after this service and say, I think I'm going to be a nun. Or I think I'm going to live in a monastery. As a matter of fact, the opposite is true. This is, I'm going to see my work as my mission field. I'm going to see my family as my mission field. I'm going to see my friends as my mission field. I'm going to see retirement as an opportunity to 
be, to do to be the hands and feet of God to the glory of the Lord. Consecrated, set apart. That means that we don't see our lives as in a box. Here is my Christian life. Here is my work life. Here is my family life. Here is my social life. No. No. Here is my social life with Jesus influencing and running through it. Here is my work life and I'm a gospel testimony in that. Here is my family life and my family knows that although there are a lot of important things in my life, Christ is preeminent. How do we know that our lives are acceptable, an acceptable offering? Because they're holy. They're consecrated. They're set apart for the Lord. Hebrews 12 says that without holiness, no person will see God. And I believe this, friends. Christ would rather us be holy than anything else. Than happy. Than healthy. Than prosperous. Than content. Although I think contentment is a big aspect of holiness. He would rather us see holy, be holy than anything else. And this spiritual change leads to a physical change. This progressive sanctification. I want to focus on one more thought today. This work of the Lord, God's working transforms our minds. Paul goes on to say, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Conformed here is a compound word that implies the schemes, the schemes do not follow, Paul says then, the schemes of this world. Do not find lovely what the world finds lovely. And even the world here is defined more clearly and it is wonderful when you put it together. The word for world here is aeon. And it means, I might be saying that wrong, but it means this present age. This present age. The world um, has a way of trying to box Christians in. And friends, I want you to know, um, I, don't, I think we need, to be, we need to operate carefully. We need to operate shrewdly. We need to operate gently. But we cannot give up an ounce of what is holy to the world. The world will not just ask for what is holy that they don't like now. They will ask for what will become uh, unlikable in the future also. You can see this in liberal churches, which are just jokes. You can get more Bible at a local Freemason meeting than you can at these type of churches. Do not be conformed, then Paul says, to the present schemes of this age. One of those present schemes that we must not conform to is secularism and humanism. Secular humanism. This is Putting the emphasis on the here and now. There is no eternal. Secularism is putting the emphasis on the here and now. There is nothing eternal. No God to stand before. Then everything that we done is, everything that we do is humanistic at that point. We are only trying, if, there's, if we are thinking secularly, there is no God, there are no eternal ramifications, then all that will lead to is humanistic behavior. So it's been called together. Secular humanism. Humanistic behavior is this. I am going to amass every single thing that I can. Everything that I do is going to be about bringing the best result in the 50 or 60 or 70 years that I have available. Everything that I do is going to be about bringing about the best result for me and those around me and those I deem as worthy. Do not be conformed to the present schemes of this world. There is no God. There is no eternal God in secularism and in humanism. Everything that we do, since there are no eternal ramifications, is about us. 
or about those that we deem important enough. This is why I reject the modern day social justice movement. Because it is secular and it is humanistic. The highest goal of the modern day social movement is not eternal, but it is only accomplishing an improved quality of life while bringing others down to another perceived level. It is just the here and now. You have heard me say this before. There are many churches these days that are liberal, not just in their theology, but in their uh, their orthodoxy and the way of pract- uh, their uh, orthopraxy and their way of practice. You've heard me say something like this before, but legalism uh, is defined as truth without charity. Liberalism then is charity without truth, and Christianity is charity and truth. It is anti-gospel, friends, to only focus on fixing social issues or even to have those as the main issue. It will only help in a humanistic standpoint. Listen, I think we should fight as Christians to make sure that we have a racial equality mindset. Meaning that there is no such thing as race. Race race itself is a social construct. All the Bible ever speaks of is ethnos, ethnicity. And it has nothing to do with darker or lighter pigmentation. This is why I think we should fight for that. I think we should fight for that understanding because any perceived racism or or fixing that racism that does not have the gospel in mind is only going to fix something from a humanistic standpoint. It's only going to fix something in the here and now we need to teach our children. We need to teach our church and we need to teach our (coughs) our the next generation that the only delineation between humans is in Christ or not in Christ. And everyone else that is not like us in Christ, we should love and respect and pursue like we were pursuing our own moms and dads, like we're pursuing our own sons and daughters. The real problem with racism is not that it is necessarily systemic or not that it exists on a wide scale spread or a wide scale spectrum. The real problem with racism is that we are addressing racism in an improper way and as anti-gospel. When we approach racism with the gospel, when we see every man as equal as in equal footing before God, and in need of a savior. And we see us as responsible for the proclamation to that soul. Then pigmentation will not be the issue that has been made. In our culture, in our society. The modern day social justice movement does not answer the question of racism. Or socioeconomic issues. Because it only tries to fix things in a secularistic, humanistic way. The secularist, the natural result of the secularistic and humanistic mind is to go to relativism. Another, uh, another point of this age, uh, another scheme of this age is relativism. There are no absolutes. Truth and values are out the windows. If out the window, if you have no Uh, If you are not responsible to an eternal God, if your ultimate goal is to only get the best good for now, then the most obvious and logical conclusion is the best good is then whatever you determine it to be. And that is relativism. Relativism is anti-gospel. It says you speak your truth, you live your truth, you do your truth, Where the gospel says there is but one truth and it comes from God. Relativism is a natural result of a secular humanistic mindset. Another natural result of a secular humanistic mindset. And this is one we all might fall in line with a little bit is materialism. If there is no eternal God to follow. If the ultimate goal is to use the resources we have to bring about the best good for us and those that we love and those that we deem important. If truth is what we make it. 
then the natural result is we become consumers. We just become consumers. We try to get everything that we can to bring about that best desired humanistic result. We gather and we find and we acquire and everybody who does that apart from God in Christ Jesus is left wanting and needy. You can look at the richest. You can look at the people who have acquired the most. And they will tell you that anything but what they've acquired is what they would go after if they had to do it all again. Even if they don't say God, even if they don't say a spiritual thing, they would say something else. They would say family. They would say time. They would say love. Even if they didn't say God, but they wouldn't say possessions. But here we are. We're caught in the middle of that. Not only do we tacitly approve of many or most of these worldly mindsets, we have them. We are practically secular at times. We act as if there are no eternal consequences for our here and now. We can waste a minute. We can waste an hour just the same as we can waste a day or a month or a year. We act secular in the sense that we act as if there are no eternal consequences. We are humanistic and we are materialistic when our ultimate goal is to gather and consume resources for our great good. If you think, well, I'm not that person. I mean, I drive a beat up car. I live in an okay house. What about this? What about how you treat your time? Do you possess your time as all yours? Or do you redeem your time for the glory of the Lord? You may not be a possessive, possession type person, but a materialistic mindset is a mindset that says, my time is mine. This is all me time. This is recovery time. The Bible says, present your bodies as a sacrifice. We would say, I don't want to be secular. I don't want to be humanistic. I don't want to be materialistic. I don't want to be relative. And yet, we find ourselves on those paths at times. We even find ourselves relativist. And you would be in here thinking, not me. I know about the Bible. You've taught me well, Bryce. I know. I've seen it for myself. But many of us on the real commands of God, the ones that it cost you something to follow in this culture, like sexual uh, deviance and different things like that, or abortion, will say, for me, that's wrong. For me, that's wrong. Saying for me, that's wrong about the truths that God have set, has said is wrong and wrong and wrong is moral relativism. Saying, for me, abortion is wrong, but I can't say that for everybody. That's moral relativism. Saying, for me, abortion is wrong, but that's not my choice to make for them. That's moral relativism. It's like saying, for me, it's wrong to go shoot someone in the head, but for someone else, you know, it's up to them. How do we find ourselves today? Are we conformed to the schemes of this present age? It is a scheme, friends, to get you to believe that you can have like a mind like the world and be a friend of God. Are we conformed to the schemes of this present age that says a little bit of Illicit images in a, t in a video or in a movie or, or in a, something I'm watching on the internet. It's not going to change my mind. I'm not even, like that doesn't even do anything for me. 
It is a scheme of the world to make you think that you can fill your mind with the things of the world and be unaffected spiritually and physically. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to the schemes of this present age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If we are not conformed to the schemes of this present age, then where does our mind get transformed to? Even more beautiful. He says, I'm going to read it like Paul isn't saying it in the original language. He says, do not be conformed to the schemes of this present age, but be transformed, but, but, but let your mind be transformed to the age to come. Not to this present age, but the age to come. What's the age to come? This is when we are with God forever. A mind that is set on Him. Consecrated. Holy. Set apart. Unlike the world. Unimpeded by the world. Do not conform your mind to the schemes of this, this age, but conform it. Be, be transformed to the age to come. It's like, it's like being, you know, beam me up Scotty from Star Trek. It's like being here one minute and our mind and our hearts and our lives are focused on an age that is unlike what we're living in. The place where the eternal exists. Where the end game is to please a holy God and not ourselves. Where truth is absolute and founded on the work of, and the character and the nature of God. And the material will pass away and is incomparable to what is to come. As much as we can, friends, with the Spirit's help, our minds and our bodies are, be, are to be transformed towards that age. Our lives are to be moving towards God in such a way that our bodies are living for heaven and our minds are transformed as if we are already there. Good. I'm done. And I've gone a little over, but I want to say this. Look at the end of verse 2. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. <clears throat> Earlier we said that our lives are to be pleasing and an acceptable sacrifice unto God. Now we see that the life that is transformed, the mind that is transformed, is not just pleasing and acceptable unto God, but it is pleasing and it is acceptable to us. When our lives, our minds are transformed, we look at our lives and we say, this is the way it is supposed to be. This is the will of the Lord. We look at our marriage and we say, this is the will of God. When we look at marriages with relativism, we say, this is the will of God for right now. Or it was the will of God then. But when we look at the will, when we look at our mind, when we look at our marriages with a moral, transformed mind, we say, this is the will of God now. We look at our church and we say, this is the will of God now. We look at sanctification and we say, this is the will of God now. Not relativistic. Not humanistic. But that our minds and our hearts and our lives may be transformed to where the life that God has for us is good and acceptable to us also. Yes. That is contentment, friends. That is being content in the Lord. That is understanding the will of God. Paul says... That by testing, you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect. Friends, this testing will lead you into a personal experience with the will of God. And the will of God is good. 
the will of God will then, for a transformed mind, be acceptable. Good and acceptable is, is simply this, if you want to define it. It is what we would do for ourselves if we had the mind of God. Good and acceptable is what we would do for ourselves if we had the mind of God. And perfect. When we are transforming our lives and our minds, what we find through the Spirit's power is that His will for us is good and acceptable. And that last word, perfect, is just simply this. Complete. It's all we need. Full. Accomplished. Done. Over. We don't have to seek for anything else. We don't have to wonder if we're missing out on something from God. We don't have to uh, worry if God is not showing us something or hiding something from us. When our lives and our minds are transformed, what we find out is that every good and acceptable thing has been given to me and it is given to me completely. And if God wants us to know about it, He'll give it to us. And if He doesn't, He'll keep it from us and we can be okay with both. Romans 12, 1 and 2 should have just kicked you on your fanny right there. I don't know how many times I've read the, those verses. I've been impacted by them greatly. Um, I'm so thankful that we're doing Romans. I have a lot of things to repent of. I have a lot of, mind, a lot of things in my mind I need to change. I want to be, I want to be this content every day. I've been there. I've felt it. I've felt this. I've felt it. I want to be this regularly. I want my life and my mind to be transformed in such a way that what God has for me now is good, it's acceptable, and it's complete. And that's it. That's enough for me. That's the answer for me. I can't worry about what might happen in the future. I can't worry about what has happened in the past. And I can't worry about what I'm missing out on right now. I just assume that if I have it, that God's given it to me. If I don't have it, He's keeping it from me. And both of those things are for my good. Oh God, help us to rest in those ideas and those thoughts. Help us to trust you in a way that is unlike us and incomparable to anything that we give our trust to. Would you light in us a spirit of sanctification? Would you drive us to be more like you through your Holy Spirit? So that we too may know what is good and acceptable and is perfect. Oh God, you are so good. And we take that for granted. Help us to want your will and nothing else. Nothing more, nothing less. And when we find it, when our lives are being transformed and our minds are being transformed to your image... Help us to pursue that with everything that we have as a living sacrifice. 